design is everywhere. So are we. Design Museum Portland is supported by members like you. Unlock a world of design by becoming a member of Design Museum Portland. This event is brought to you by Creative Circle, with additional support from the Village Ballroom, Oregon Public House, and Bushwhacker Cider. You're listening to the first podcast of Design Museum Portland's Story Hour. Design is often used to tell a story. Design Museum Portland's Story Hour offers the opportunity to share tales of creativity and exploration live and on stage. A collection of storytellers came together to share their design fail stories for the launch of Design Museum Portland's Story Hour series. These stories are recorded live in Portland, Oregon on April 22, 2015, and feature storytellers Kiel Van Zoen, Hunter Marshall, Frederick Averin, Eric Corey Freed, Mark Shapiro, Scott Erickson, and Gabe Paez. Trying to be eco-conscious often means pushing boundaries. Pushing boundaries often leads to failure. Here's a story about embracing failure and how that led to a surprising discovery, told by Kiel Van Zoen from Plywork. Hello. Um, who's here has heard of Plywork? See, that has nothing to do with my talk, but I think it's interesting for me. Um, so today is April 22nd, 2015, which means that 45 years ago today, over 20 million Americans took to the streets to show their support for what we now know as the, the eco-movement or the eco-conscious movement. That became known as the first Earth Day, which is today. So I chose this picture to represent what it is that we're trying to protect when it comes to Earth Day. This is actually very close by here. I took this myself about a month ago in Forest Park. So you don't have to go very far to really enjoy this. And we're very lucky here because of that. Um, what's this got to do with design failure? Well, at Pyrook, we take our eco-conscious efforts really seriously. We use what we call the, what is called the four systems conditions of the natural step framework to assess every input and output into our business from a systems science perspective. So, in a short, that means we're total eco-nerds. And we give up some profits to do that, but we love doing it, so we do it anyway. Um, and at one point, we were looking at the design of our packaging. Now, apply work, for the ones that do know, or don't know, sorry, is uh, an image mounted to a bamboo panel. Okay, so we mount an image to a bamboo panel, and there's no protection on top of it. But what we do when we ship it is we use eco-conscious, sorry, we use freezer paper, and we put it on top of the panel, and then we send it out to the customer. Now, freezer paper protects the panel during shipping. It kind of sits on top and allows it to move around a little bit and stops it from getting scratched. So we put each, each image we send out, we put a freezer paper in there, and when it gets to the customer, they take the freezer paper, they throw it in the trash, and it goes in the landfill. You can't, it's not biodegradable, it can't go to compost, and you can't recycle it. It's terrible for the environment, and we were doing this with every single order. So from a design perspective for us, from an eco-conscious perspective, it was terrible. So what we did is we looked at three alternatives, and we started testing it. We tested it for scratches, obviously. We tested it for humidity and temperature changes during shipping, and we also tested it for dust collection, because if it collects dust, it will get in between the print and the thing and scratch it as well. And we documented the whole thing. We took pictures, we had graphs, we had, we had bar charts, we had um, tables of information, we had videos, and in the end, our existing freezer paper was way better than the other three. It was a total failure, and not only that, we had like the most documented, best documented failure ever. So I thought, what are we going to do now? So we said, well, let's just 
publish it anywhere. So we put it on the web, on our blog, and we wrote about it in our newsletter, put it on our Facebook, and forgot about it. We're trying. So now if you go to Pyro, sorry, if you go to Google today and type in eco-conscious freezer paper, you will see free results on Google right at the top still. I checked yesterday, so hopefully this is still true. Uh, and it actually links the two blog posts on our blog. The first one is publishing our total failure. The second one was written six months later, where it tells a story of a company called Pack Paper, which is across the river here in Vancouver, and they went along and typed in eco-conscious freezer paper on Google, and they came to us and said, hey, we have some eco-conscious freezer paper. Do you want to buy it from us? They're like, yes, we do. <laughs> How many pallets do you want? None. Just one roll probably lasted six months. They're like, oh, well, can you write a blog post about us? Yeah, we can do that. And then we wrote a blog post about them, and they gave us a free eco-conscious freezer paper, and they continue to use it to this day. And that is the story of Eco Conscious Freezer Paper, and I was in there. Thank you very much. Some people fear that corporations are running the world with nefarious intent. Some people have seen firsthand that Fortune 100 executives often can't decide on a color let alone a world domination scheme. Have a peek behind the scenes of rebranding a Silicon Valley icon with Hunter Marshall of Liquid Agency. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a long story, it's rather involved. Uh, but I'm here to still tell a, good, a story of good intentions that went horribly wrong combined with a lot of money. Uh, and I'm also delighted to share it with this audience and to have this go in the, it seems to be the official archive of the design community as well. I've been dying to tell this for years. It comes up over beers occasionally. And there's actually uh, one of the other speakers tonight um, was at the same design agency at the same time and knows the story a little bit already from the outside. So he can keep me honest on it. Um, and thank you uh, to the Design uh, Museum for this opportunity. Um, so, um, what you're looking at here, or you will see shortly, <laughs> is, a, uh, is a newspaper looking thing. <laughs> there we go. All right. So, um, I'm, I'm going to leave some names out to protect the innocent. I will introduce you shortly to the cast of characters. But this is uh, Hewlett Packard, for those of you who might be able to recognize that logo from a few years ago. This is a newspaper that we published as part of a rebranding program to communicate with employees about how this design system worked. And so this is the story of that design system, how it came to be, how it failed, and, uh, and then an epilogue, a brief epilogue. So um, the cast, a very ambitious, driven, historic CEO. A legendary man of advertising, a cynical EVP of a major company, a European design purist, creative director, very elegant, very elegant, an ingenue from the Midwest making her mark in the design industry and at a major corporation driving the project. Myself, a greenhorn, an account guy at a lean brand agency, and the Silicon Valley iconic brand that you're seeing here. So the setting is the end of the dot-com era in Silicon Valley, 1999. And um, 
Interestingly, when we were starting work on this project, I went to uh, the slides, 35 millimeter slides were still what we were using to pitch back even in those days. And there was a slide from 1967 that pretty much stated the exact design problem that we were about to take on, which was, should HP have one identity system or many? You know, should they have one logo? Should they have divisional logos? Because there had been a tradition of when the company reached about 5,000 people in a certain division, they would spin off and they would relocate to somewhere like Vancouver or Corvallis, where HP still has facilities today. Um, so there's a lot of fragmentation in their branding. Um, so enter the CEO in 1999. Um, they're tradition, very traditional company, but also very innovative company. So they hire in from outside. Uh, the CEO comes in kind of guns blazing. Uh, the divisions were running wild with their freedom of design systems and logos, and everybody had a different packaging look, for all these crazy sub-brands and logos. And um, she came in really wanting to bring HP into the next century. And at the time, they had an advertising agency that they were scared of being fired by. Uh, <laughs> you might have heard of them. Uh, they did a little thing called Got Milk, which some people might know about. Um, so they were, they were doing all kinds of ads for some of their divisions. And so they, she came in and wanted to make her mark. And the first thing she looked at was you know, the, the expression of the brand. And um, so, Basically, they came up with their big idea. And their big idea, I'll look at the Here's the good intentions part. They, we often say that you have to have something that's based on what a company is really all about, what's truthful about the company. You want to build kind of from the inside out, not just kind of telling people what they want here, but here's what we stand for. Come to us. Um, so they, they, did, they did a good job of that. They, they, they explored it. Uh, they looked at this idea of culture of innovation. That this was the original garage in Silicon Valley uh, that Hewlett and Packard had formed their company in. So it's a strong company of innovation. So the big idea was invent. And that's where things started to go a little strange, which is because people were very confused by this line. It's locked up with a logo. And employees were like, to me, inventing? Invent what? For who? And is it for our customers? Are our customers going to invent? I mean, what is this tagline anyway? Um, so quickly, this started spiraling out of control. Um, the, the HP realized that they that this agency didn't know really know how to do branding. So they hired the agency I was working at to roll out a global brand in three months. So from kind of briefing to launch at uh, CES in 2000 in three months. Uh, to do a whole identity system, reskin the website, all this stuff. Um, so, of course, we said yes, there's a million dollars involved, so, um, <laughs> of course, there is. Um, so, what we got was the logo, the font Futura, and this idea of white space. <laughs> that was the brand. That was the brand identity as far as the ad agency had taken it. And we also saw through looking at all of the uh, the divisions of HP, everybody kind of wanted to do their own thing. They had, you know, all this imagery from, they, they cover everything. They, they, from, you know, biggest corporations in the world to uh, everyday folks buying their printers or buying their inks. So it, it really had to encompass a huge variety of audiences. So um, we also inherited this idea of the rules of the garage. And what I would make this analogy is, is that this agency was kind of making a fable. It's like a biography being made of um, somebody without their consent or awareness. 
at this point. So this com this uh, agency was kind of making up stories which are kind of vaguely true, but things that employees felt like they couldn't live up to in a way. It was, it was setting the bar a little bit too high. Um, so what we came up with, and you're seeing here in this newspaper, was a very modular system. It had these kind of rounded edges that were based on the, the uh, HP logo, if you see it. Uh, it was very flexible and free in the, in the conception of the European designer. It was like, well, they're just going to want to put a bunch of crap on their boxes. So we'll give them some boxes on their boxes to put their crap in. And the, uh, the identity system was built up of these, what we were calling idea units. So we would get out and do our training, and we would say, and in this idea unit, you have all freedom. You can use cartoons, you can put uh, product images, you can put speeds and feeds, but it has to be simple, it has to be basic, you know? Um, and it, it just kind of, um, you know, it was, it was, I thought, a very elegant solution, but also very naive. Um, the CEO loved it. Um, we shared it with her. But it was very, it was kind of provocative. And remember, we shared this early on with one of the art directors at the ad agency. And he's like, well, this one is thought-provoking. That one is just provoking, but this is thought-provoking. So we went with the thought-provoking one. And um, so the CEO really liked it. But in the run-up to that meeting, we're kind of very nervous walking in with this kind of fire-breathing CEO, the first woman ever named a CEO in Fortune you know, 10 companies and so forth. And um, our sponsor, the Simple Executive VP, said, well, I just want you guys to know that this, if you don't do a good job here, I'm not standing up behind you. <laughs> I will not support this direction. I don't get it. So um, anyway, happy times. We went in, and uh, this was like five minutes before being ushered into the executive suite and so forth. So that was, that was pretty good. Um, but she loved it. She remembered it over the other ideas. We had gone and done research in China and Mexico and all around the world, and it came back. This was kind of the, the best direction for the company and so forth. So that was good. Then we meet the legendary ad man to show what we've done with his concept. And we found out that he had been very involved in this to the degree that he had art directed and sat over the, um, over the shoulder of the uh, the poor Photoshop guy, and there were a hundred levels of Photoshop um, layers in this drop shadow on the HP Invent logo. So he's pretty committed to it. Um, anyway, I'm getting the notice that I need to wrap up, so I will. Um, but basically, um, we got into a shouting match, and I'm kind of the greenhorn guy, and I'm defending the system. He's like, it's never going to work. It's too, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to stand the test of time, blah, blah, blah. Um, cut to the chase. Um, it was rejected by the host organism. People did not get the system. They thought it was too simplistic. Uh, they thought that uh, it was too confining, despite the, the claims of freedom that we were proposing to them. And uh, the the big failure, you know, Carly Fiorina was kicked out of the company, not because of this, but because of other things she was doing. Um, and uh, the legendary ad man rides to this day off into, uh, still has the HP account. They changed the logo a couple of years later. Liquid Agency actually redrew the logo, uh, coincidentally. And uh, let's see, so here's the epilogue. Um, the ingenue was promoted, um, and the EVP was demoted and moved around in the organization, still there. Um, and uh, then I came to Portland, so I guess it turned out all right. Thank <laughs> you.
When everybody fails everyone. The story of the dream job that turned into nothing but disappointment. Please welcome creative director and graphic designer, Frederick Aberin. Um, so today, I'm going to be sharing a story about a job I took. Um, it happened several years ago when I was approached by a small but story design firm to help one of their, one of their satellite offices. Um, at a first glance, this was a dream job. It had everything. Great clients, amazing talent, and a legacy of sustained success. Needless to say, I took the job on the spot, wide-eyed, no questions asked. Um, our office was small at first. It was just a account person or not, but the promise was that we would quickly grow or quickly hire people as business grew. Fast forward to three months later, we had hired our first employee, had a few successful client meetings, uh, and momentum was building, or so I thought. As it turned out, the agency had some internal issues despite its successes. Here's a few examples. There was a struggle in trying to bring the creative DNA to the firm uh, or from the firm, rather, to our office. Management just didn't seem to know how to do it, and as a result, we really struggled with our own identity. The account person would consistently question the creative in my process, which is fine, except for the fact that it didn't make the work any better. It just made the process arduous and unbearable. In addition to, to the dynamics of the firm, we were also working on a highly demanding client with really high expectations under really tight deadlines. Little by little, this all wore on me. My confidence was shaken, and I started to have serious doubts about my own value, skill, and purpose as a creative. After about a year, the day came when it was time for me to quit, and so I did. To this day, this is probably the biggest disappointment of my career. So what did I learn? Two things. Number one, do your research. Find out what you're getting yourself into before you get into it. Ask as many questions as possible of everyone, the founders, the partners, the employees. Learn about the office dynamics, the politics. Dig into the job responsibilities, the job description. Get to know the clients and whether you're there for an expert opinion or just to execute. Work hard to truly understand the culture of a place and don't be blinded by the portfolio, past successes, or promises. Number two. Value, respect, and protect yourself and your work. What we creatives have to offer the world is fragile. Our value lies in how we internalize creative briefs, client objectives, create work presented, and implement feedback, which if done well, leads to amazing results. Results that can exceed not only the client's expectations, but sometimes even our own. What we have is fragile because it comes from an intuitive place of self-awareness and experience that's built by thousands of tiny failures, each one teaching us how to solve problems better than the time before. So, if you truly love your craft, which I still do after 20 years, then cherish it, nurture it, and protect it. Work hard to understand where it comes from and how to keep it alive. If you love the craft itself and not the place of work, then no one can ever take it away from you. I'm going to end with this quote by uh, the artist Sister Corita Kent. Rule number six, nothing is a mistake. There's no win and no fail. There's only make.
Eric Corey Freed is the VP of the International Living Future Institute. Eric's story entails his neurotic guilt about being in a profession that causes the biggest negative impact on the planet, architecture, and shares how our own stupidity is killing us. Mildly depressing, yet funny, Eric will share his insight into why we do this and what we can do to change it. So Sarah, I know Sarah from before. It's a compl- comp- we didn't date her or anything, but it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, would you do this? And I'm like, how much? And she's like, no, there's no money. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Well, is there food or anything? And then nothing. And then, and then she said, I want you to be like really just inspirational and dynamic and like have a lot of gravitas. And I'm like, okay, great, how much time do I have? She's like, you can have four minutes or eight minutes. And I was like, you better give me the eight minutes because uh, if you want gra- you know, gravitas, that takes a little extra. <laughs> so uh, right after like the four minute mark, it'll kick in and you'll send it. <laughs> I might not even go the whole eight minutes because I got pee, frankly. So <laughs> By the way, Talking about a design fail, a uh, great diverse lineup of white guys that they had tonight. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Energy from the sun. 
for free. And with the mind of child, of course, she's like, well, Daddy, why don't all buildings have this, Daddy? Why? So I leaned down. She looks in her cute little face. I said, oh, honey, that's because most people are douchebags. <laughs> what am I going to tell her? The truth? Well, you see, honey, there's this vast oil and coal cartel that control all of energy, but that'll give her nightmares. I can't tell her that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was born I was born in 1970 I was born like right around the time of first Earth Day like basically 1970 started and the Beatles broke up and then nine months later I was born that's basically the timeline of my life and to this day I'm still harboring some things with my because I think my mother's involved with that breakup I'm not quite sure you know <laughs> that's a joke it's not really, it's not really. my mother's joke going on so uh, <laughs> But I grew up in inner city Philadelphia in a building, first of all, it was a row of houses that they called row houses. And they were made of wood, but they were covered with brick, but not real brick, fake brick. It was stucco made to look like brick. And, and on it were shutters that were glued on that didn't move. And I kept yelling at my mom, please take the shutters off. She wouldn't do it. And uh, they bothered me. And in this context, this like vast urban West Philadelphia neighborhood, I somehow got into my head I'd be an architect. Like that's how basically it was like, oh, that's inspiring. Just redesign everything. Which, by the way, I have an idea for a TV show that I want to launch. And basically, I come to your house, I critique uh, your furniture and your clothes and your hairstyle and then even the food you buy. And then that's the end of the show. But nobody can see by that show. Uh, where was it? Oh, yeah. So I'm, a, I'm a, a vegetarian, I'm not a vegan. I know some of you are. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an asshole to everybody, so I'm not. <laughs> and um, I'm a vegetarian, but I do eat. I have to admit, I eat fish and uh, chicken and uh, <laughs> and pork. bacon and cheeseburgers. And <laughs> but I'm, a, you know, in my heart, <laughs> like you know, with the like with you guys, you know. I'm a vegetarian. All right. Um, <laughs> the act of building, the reason I'm here, I'm going to get, actually get to my answer on that. The act of building is stupid. It's just disruptive. I don't know if you realize this, but every year we produce three tons of concrete for every single person on Earth. Every year we cut down two trees for every single person on Earth. Every year we produce 600 pounds of steel for every single person just in the U.S. And powering all this is not karma or good vibes. It's fossil fuels. It's like massive amounts of fossil fuels. And one company, Exxon, is sucking four million barrels of oil a day out of the ground, every single day. And I know that just seems like an absurd amount of anything, right? But it's nothing compared to the 92 million that all the companies suck out of the ground every single day. And so I'm an architecture student, I'm in Philadelphia, and I'm raising my hand like, well that, that doesn't make sense. And they're like, well that's just the way we've always done it. And then they would tell us about the toxins in the buildings, like oh yeah, totally, awful chemicals. And I'm like, well that doesn't make sense. They're like, well that's just the way we've always done it. And so it's just bizarre to me. This is the context that I grew up in. So as I became an architect, it wasn't just enough to be an architect, but what type of architect I wanted to be. I wanted to be an architect that changed things, that changed the world. So the organization I now represent, the Living Future Institute, is here in Portland. We essentially teach people how to build living buildings, regenerative buildings. If a, if a building is bad, and I'm safe to say that it is, and a green building is less bad, because it's using less toxins and less energy, but it's still bad, we step back and say, well, wait a minute, what would good look like? And let's set that as the bar. 
And that's what we've done. And we think of the living building challenge. And we basically say a building, a good building, generates more energy than it consumes, processes its own waste, cleans its own water, produces its own food. That's good. And you have to, if you want to have a good building, that's what it looks like. And now we have hundreds of buildings in 18 countries that are doing this. Which is my shameless plug, by the way, if you want to learn more about it. <laughs> I was driving the other day and I saw this bumper sticker and it said, climate change is a hoax. And I was gonna ram, I was just gonna ram. <laughs> It was a rental car. It was like, screw it. It was a rental car. I was just gonna pay the deductible. You know it, but I didn't because I'm a Buddhist. And then, um, <laughs> but I realized something. You never see that bumper sticker, and then like next to it, one of those "Oh my kids an honor student" bumper stickers. The two bumper stickers are never on the same bumper. You know that? They're like never. See, it's a causation correlation. That joke. That joke plays better visually. Than I <laughs> All right. Um, but I deal with these deniers all the time. I mean, I live here, but I get to go all over the country and talk to you. I go to like places like Nebraska, places that they exist. I don't know if you've been there. It's weird. It's a place in the middle of the country. And I talk to these deniers. Sometimes they walk out. I've been giving speeches, and they've left, and they cover their ears as they leave the room. I'm not making that up. And it's just strange to me. And then you meet them, and you realize you can kind of trace it all the way back to this climate denial machine that the Koch brothers have represented. You guys all heard these guys talk about Right? $700 billion a year coal interest, right? And someone asked me once, they said, how do those people sleep at night, those Koch brothers? How do they sleep? And I looked it up, and it's like on 1,000 for a count Egyptian cotton. <laughs> <laughs> on this like gold plate as hard as bed, it's really nice. <laughs> so I think they sleep probably really well. But basically, that's yeah. the point. And um, thank you, one lady, for laughing at that joke. <laughs> but they have this idea that there's this vast conspiracy. Oh, i got to wrap up. And um, that it's like, it's not the oil and coal companies, but in fact, it's, uh, it's the scientists trying to get money. Yeah. And I just want to say to you, have you, have you ever met a scientist? <laughs> like they're awkward, and they have like, there's no social, like they're weird, like they're weird. They don't have the social skills to pull it off, basically, <laughs> is my point. And uh, yeah, somehow it releases them, and not like these corrupt oil companies. So that's just a weird thing. So with that, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you for laughing. When it takes three years and nearly 300,000 clicks of a camera to create one stop-motion feature, there are bound to be some fails along the way. Next up, Mark Shapiro, the marketing director for Leica. Um, I was just thinking about what I was going to say with my little intro to follow that last comedic, um, awesome. Um, if you're a comedian, you never want to follow something like that. So thanks a hell of a lot for that. Um, but anyway, I was thinking about what I would talk about when I first intro this piece, and then I thought about the name Leica. And if anybody's familiar with Leica, the dog that went in space, and the design fail that failed to return a live dog from space, I think I don't even know if the dog made it in space. But, um, so now I've got, what, 325? Um, so when you make a stop-motion feature film, and as um, Sarah mentioned, we were talking about um, about 300,000 clicks of the camera. That's 144,000 JPEGs times two because we're shooting in 3D. So you do left eye and right eye with a digital camera. And when you do that, basically there's, there's design felt every, every day and constant design recovery sort of like a relationship, or like you said, raising kids. Um, and it's, it's, it is kind of like raising our, our baby with our, with our three films. And 
on our feature the box dolls, we had a real challenge with, with elements. And for any stop motion animators, elements meaning like fire, water, smoke, anything that won't stand still for a, for a camera, you have to create things by hand and to make it look realistic. In Coraline, we actually 3D printed um, into the fire that looked kind of oblong and strange in this the world of the box trolls, which is more realistic. And so for the box trolls, we were trying to come up with an idea for our largest puppet today that we ever created, which was a five foot tall puppet called the Megadro, which you see right there, um, with Snatcher in red lipstick running on the top part of, the, of this Megadrill. And um, the challenge that we had, we talked about putting LED lights into the grill of this, of this contraption. You can see the front part that looks like a Mercedes grill. And um, we thought, okay, we could put LED lights. We, we wanted to do everything in camera, which means not do it CG. Um, what do we do? Again, LED lights would just make the grill just sort of glow a little bit. By the way, um, that is not an editor, that's an electrician named Matt, Matt DeLue. Mm -hmm. And is Matt here? So I don't know that. I'm good. I can talk about Matt. <laughs> so um, we thought, okay, what do we do? What do we put in the grill? How do we make it look realistic? How do we create um, the futuristic look of this kind of punk, steampunk vibe of this anachronistic look and feel of this, of this thing that he's driving around? What do we do? Um, we tried. We tried printing. We tried. Um, we tried drawing. We tried everything. And then someone came up with the idea of uh, why not create again. Puppet five feet tall. Why not put an iPad mini in the middle part of that little grill there and put fire on there? So, problem solved, right? Um, the challenge then was okay, we can do that, but uh, then we need to build an app. So, we did. We actually created this whole thing. We put the app inside of there and um, built it for fire. And Again, every time that you create a new challenge, and we had two incredibly um, challenging, not challenging, but directors that like to challenge, Graham Mandel and Tony Stocky, and um, whenever you're dealing with 420-some artists and people making things by hand, you always seem to go the, the long, complicated route, which, again, creates design problems, design fail, design success. So we built it, we built the app, and then someone remembered that, and we're shooting a 3D film, so what do you do? You have to build an app for left eye, click, and right eye, click. So on the inside, when you see, you see the box stroll, uh, Mechadrill walking down with the fire coming out of it, you realize that it came out of a design fail that became design success. Okay, I'm trying to stay my little four minute thing. Is that, is that good? Is that good? Do I have time for like one joke or something? Okay. Thank you. The journey of the creative is not an easy one, especially when it starts in the place of failure. Here to tell us such a tale, artist Scott Erickson. Uh, hey, how many of you have a two-year-old? See, this is, the, this is the cool shit that people do with our two-year-olds. Awesome. Glad to be here tonight. Uh, I'm an artist, uh, designer, and storyteller. Um, so a few, just last weekend I was with one of my best friends and he is a, a really successful doctor, smart, just really talented at what he does and he always wanted to be a doctor, um, but you know, he didn't just get to be called a doctor, he had to go through his eight years of schooling and residency and all that work and then at the end the establishment of medicine said you're a doctor, right? Or I have another friend who is a, a therapist and really talented as well, but you know, he also had to go through this school and this process of becoming a therapist and was given the title 
of a therapist. And this is kind of the norm, right? You go through this education and these systems and you get this title, but the title of being an artist or a designer or something is a, a bit different. It doesn't come from an outside entity, right? You can go to school for it, but uh, or and schooling helps if you want to teach later on, but it's you become an artist when you actually make art. So you become a designer when you actually fashion design, or you become a filmmaker when you actually make a film, right? It's, it's this moment that actually it's up to you. It's a self-defining uh, title that happens. You have to embrace this responsibility, actually, like in your life, go, I guess I'm this thing, and now I'm supposed to go on this really awkward journey now, apparently, right? And I remember the moment that I actually had this conversation with myself, and I was, I was 27 years old, I was teaching high school, actually, at the time, and, uh, and then waited tables part-time because you don't make anything to in high school. Um, and it's kind of bizarre, but I, I had these really weird dreams and visions about creating art in a way that I never really thought about before. And it was like this kind of calling from the inside that kept like disturbing my life. And I, I, re I recognized that I had to have a conversation with myself and it kind of all culminated at this coffee shop in Seattle or I had a conversation with myself, which is not that abnormal in Portland to see people talking to themselves, but, um, or in Seattle. And uh, it was kind of, the question was this, like, how am I supposed to live in the world? What's the best way to live in the world? And I think you have to kind of contemplate how do you think the world works. Is it, you know, one option is just going, hey, it's this kind of chaotic, abstract existence, and we're all just kind of here, and it's a miracle, right? But let's just make the most out of it just because this doesn't really mean anything at all. So let's just find something that gives you joy before we're just the blip goes out, right? Or I think you could go, this is a gift. And uh, our existence, your existence, mine, is a gift to this world and each other. And the way to carry this gift well is to find out, figure out, what's the best thing that I can spend my time doing? Like, what's the it's the best thing I can do. And in that moment, and I was a horrible artist at the time, but I was like, wow, the best thing I can do is create art. And that was a really disappointing moment. Like, it wasn't like a hallelujah moment. I was like, oh, really? It's like, let's be honest. There's a lot of really important things going on in the world, right? And I've got friends who have really important jobs doing those important things, fighting inequality, you know, hunger, famine, thirst, uh, motorcycles, uh, you know, whatever, politics, these kind of things that are, end up on the news and we give money to because we think they're important and, they, and they're involved with that and they're giving their lives to it. And I had this kind of hard idea going, so I'm not supposed to be involved with that, but I'm supposed to spend a lot of my time in a room making paintings? Like, it just seemed really unimportant. It seemed really... Um, kind of a distraction, it seems a bit of a failure. It's weird to get to an epiphany and feel like that epiphany is a failure. Like I remember uh, being at Costco with my mom, and this was in junior college before I was going to go to my last two years, and uh, I ran, she, my mom was a nurse for 40 years, and we ran into a doctor she worked with, and he was, we were talking, and he was like, oh, we're going off to Western Washington University, and I was like, yeah, he's like, what are you going to study? And at the time, I was debating between education or art major, and I ended up being an education major, but I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be an art major, and he just looked at me and said, you should do business, <laughs> right? <laughs> and 
And now, if I, and I would like to believe that in that moment he was like, yeah, one of the things about being a creator is you need to learn business. A lot of your time is going to be running a business, so you should learn that. And I've been like, that's great. Thanks, man. But no, he, I don't think he was actually saying that. I think he was like, uh, you should choose business because choosing art isn't going to go anywhere. And in that moment at the coffee shop, I was like, I was like am I being given a failure? I, I had this perfect metaphor that came to mind. It had to do with this 90s cartoon called Captain Planet. I don't know if some of you know about this or your kids watched it or you've watched it. It was the best environmental campaign that's ever happened for children. So there's this, there's this cartoon, and the planet Earth is dying because of pollution, right? So the spirit of the planet, Gaia, played by Whoopi Goldberg, of course, she decides to give up these five magic power rings to teenagers across the world. Brilliant idea give teenagers powerful rings. And uh, they're there to take these rings and fight the evil people who want to destroy the planet. These, kind of, these are the kind of people who are like pouring oil on dolphins or like making a giant uh, photocopy machine that just runs forever and destroys trees, right? So these teenagers group together and they have these powers. And the powers are based on the elements of the earth. So there's the fire rings, you can control fire, and there's the earth ring. It sounds crazy to say this out loud, but this was, a, this was actually a cartoon. I think supported by the government. Uh, so the earth ring and the water ring and the wind ring, they can control all these elements. Very powerful. And there's this fifth ring that Mati from the Amazon had. And Mati was kind of cool, but he had a pet monkey, so that made him really cool. But his ring was the heart ring. And if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says Mati used the heart ring to instill empathy into the hearts of people so that they would care for the planet. So I don't know if you can imagine this scenario. You've got these people pouring oil on dolphins, like destroying, and then these people like, save the planet, and they're having this battle, right? And in the midst of this fight, there's one guy who's standing there going, I just want you to feel, right? <laughs> Sounds like that guy's gonna get the butt kicked. <laughs> in that moment of going, it seems like the best thing I can do is being, making art, creating things. It felt like getting the heart. It felt like being given the ring. It doesn't get a lot of airtime on, on the cartoon because it's not really that powerful. But I remember in that moment going, okay, universe, the great news, God, whoever, whatever this is, whatever this thing is, coming to this place. I'm going to take this because this is what it seems like I'm being given. And if there is some kind of like cosmic justice court later on at the end of my life where I'm held accountable for this decision, and it turns out that this is a bad decision, well, it's not my fault. I'm holding you accountable, actually. But I'll take this because this seems what I'm going to be given. And that was like 10 years ago. And I've been an artist and a designer and lots of other things in that time. And I'll say this. There's a lot of powerful things in the world. Like, I always say that guns and money are going to make a real difference. But if you really want to change things, you have to change the heart. And those of us who are creatives, we're wielding the heart. We're in the conversation of the heart. And I know designers, since this is Design Museum Portland, uh, designers kind of berate themselves and kind of belittle themselves like I'm just designing stuff. And I, and I will say this, like probably some of the most fulfilling work we'll ever do is really involved with human beings and people. And so we kind of have to keep having that conversation um, about always how are we interacting with people. But 
you know, in a chaotic world of lots of elements and stuff, taking and making things into a, a shape does turn a light on in us. You know, the spark of beauty reminds us that we can overcome the ugliness that's created by apathy and neglect. You know, really creative communication helps us move forward and even upward. So that is our work. And, and I just want to say, like, would you please, with me, take the heart ring? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and let's work together to save the planet. Thanks a lot. Last up, build a homemade 360-degree camera with eight iPhones and drive across the country on a scooter? What could possibly go wrong? Welcome to the world of Gabe Piaz, founder of WILD. So I wanted to make something special. I wanted to make something with my own hands, uh, all alone. Something that would keep my mind racing as I took showers in the morning, and something that I could deconstruct and reconstruct all day long. And then ultimately creating something that was simple, beautiful, and complete. In the spring of 2012, I was recovering after leaving a very frustrating job at a design agency by watching a whole lot of movies. <laughs> so watching uh, Sideways and Little Miss Sunshine, and one uh, afternoon, I suddenly had an epiphany. I want to create a live stage show that takes place on a road trip. Simple idea. I studied three, theater and film in college. Professionally, I built technology for digitally augmented environments, so this was kind of a nice mix of my interests. Maybe I could film the trip with a 360-degree camera and then play it back live on stage uh, surrounding the actors. Now, Googling 360-degree camera at that time, I quickly realized that my options were either prohibitively expensive or consumer-level attachments that really were low quality. I would have to build my own 360-degree camera. No problem. <laughs> Great. So uh, what, how should, or what should I drive on this road trip? How about Pucho? So Pucho is an old-style Vespa scooter that I've owned for eight years. He's a primitive machine with a two-stroke engine and a manual transmission. In general, I lead a pretty high-tech lifestyle, so I appreciate Pucho because he reminds me that technology doesn't have to be advanced to have value. His name is Pucho because I name all of my vehicles, and this one's name is Pucho. <laughs> so what's the route? I could drive to the Oregon coast, but that really doesn't seem epic enough for a big idea. Highway 101, coast to coast. Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine. That's a big idea. But is it possible? Google tells me that people take uh, cross-country trips on scooters. Maybe just a few people, but it's been done. That's good <laughs> enough for me. OK, so uh, I'll leave the Pacific Ocean at sundown, and I'll arrive at the Atlantic Ocean at sunrise. Great. This is definitely epic and possible-ish. I was on a race for the season. It was summer now, and this trip would only be attainable for me before winter fell across that northern route that I had chosen. So I was working rapidly under the pressure. It was completely euphoric. Building the camera was not easy. After evaluating all my options, I settled on eight iPhones in a circle 
And then I have another iPhone that I would put on my wrist that would live preview the feeds and I could synchronize their recording. So I put all of that in a bucket that I found and that would hold it solid and then that would be placed above my head on this backpack bridge so that I could film everything around me and I wouldn't be in the shop. Um, on September 19th, 2012, I stood there in front of a living room full of all the gear I needed. I pared down to just the essentials, but the, even the essentials were extensive. Uh, I stuffed the glove box in front of me full of food and uh, those kinds of supplies, but behind my legs there was a gas tank, and then on my back was a backpack camera, and then behind that was another backpack, with, which was like a hiking backpack, with all the electronics and a few clothes, and then behind that was a couple dry bags on that rack that had uh, oil and scooter supplies. The whole thing was incredibly heavy. I designed a steady cam to keep the camera stable by balancing it over, overhead on a joint and then extending two long arms that counterbalance down on my sides to keep it held up right. <laughs> this thing looked insane on paper. Everyone I showed it to thought it was completely impressive and they were completely skeptical. But you know what? I thrive on people telling me my ideas aren't possible. I eat it up like power juice. Or you know, whatever. So, <laughs> all right, perfect. So anyway, <laughs> I worked on this thing day and night, this steady camp for weeks, and finally, standing there, September nineteenth, two thousand twelve, in front of all my stuff and the steady cam on, I realized that it was completely unusable. This thing was worked pretty good in my living room, but I was just—it was awkward and heavy, and I was completely unsure that it would hold up to 4,000 miles on the open road with the weather. So this is that familiar moment in my creative process that happens a lot, where the desire to complete the project outweighs the desire to do it well. I threw out that steady cam and hard fixed that camera right to the top of my backpack. The next morning, I set off for Seaside, Oregon. The plan was to get into Seaside the afternoon, shoot the sunset, and then drive back to Portland in the night. No problem. Balancing on that scooter was tricky with all that gear weight, but as I pulled out of the garage, I was feeling pretty hopeful. It was doable. <laughs> After turning onto that first open road and accelerating, I quickly noticed that that camera above me was like a giant sail catching the wind. <laughs> There was 20 minutes till sunset, and I was drenched in sweat, and I had the shakes. So I go to the nearest bathroom, and I throw off that giant pack on the ground, I look at myself in the mirror, unsure whether I had already failed or I was just about to fail. And I just take a deep breath, I say, okay, you got this. I put on the backpack, knowing that I just couldn't quit before I took the first shot. I walk out to the beach and I look up, it's an incredible Oregon sunset, the sun's right above these dark clouds, all the colors, this is the moment I reach to hit record on my wrist and that phone runs out of batteries. 
I throw the pack down, I reach inside, the pack spills all over, there's sand everywhere, I grab a charger out, I plug it in, and I'm waiting for it to restart as I watch the sun set behind those clouds. <laughs> I think it started up right as the first drop of rain fell on me. Camera, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all on mine, record. There's a brief moment of bliss, everything's working. Camera six slips off my shit. 30 seconds later, it comes back online. Great, I'll fix that tomorrow. Okay, I turn carefully and I walk step by step up the beach to the scooter. As I stepped on my friend Pucho, um, all the cameras were working and I knew that it would ultimately be okay. I the really the rain started to downpour and it was very strong. I opened up that throttle and I headed east to the Atlantic Ocean. So that was just the beginning of what came to be an enormous journey for me. My 10-day crossing across the United States at 40 miles per hour was only a small portion of a project that has now stretched on for years. I work on it when I have time and when I need to remind myself that the process of creation is what charges me. I hope for the opportunity and courage to someday stage the piece as I've imagined it. Tonight is another step in that journey for me. My design fail is not something that I regret or struggle with or something that I need to overcome. It's part of my process. And I'm here, driving into the unknown and it feels terrifying and incredible. I'm a maker striving, refining, and doing everything I can to manifest my wildest ideas. Thanks for listening in on this Design Museum Portland podcast. Join us next time for Story Hour, Invisible Design.